Back to your seat. 1 Samuel 17, 1 to 18, 5. And uh, we'll, for the public reading, we'll start in, in 17, verse 41, which is on page 240 of your red Bibles, if you have one, 240. If you're new to Cornerstone, we always have three sermon series going at once. We like to keep you guessing. And so I've been preaching every so often through First and Second Samuel, and this is where we are today in this story in chapter 17, and a little bit into chapter 18 of David and Goliath. So if you're able, I'd like to ask you one more time to please stand for the public reading of the holy, inspired, and inerrant Word of God. We'll begin reading First Samuel 17, verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that they, the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 
And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let's pray. Our most holy Father, would you bless us with the presence of your Spirit to bring power and effectiveness and fruitfulness to the Word of God as it is proclaimed. May it accomplish within each of us your will for our conformity to Christ and for your glory through us. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. In young Tom Sawyer's Sunday school class, the reward for memorizing two verses of Scripture was a blue ticket. And if you could amass 10 blue tickets, you could trade them for a red ticket. 20 verses. If you could amass 10 red tickets, 200 verses, you could trade them for a yellow ticket. And if you could amass 10 yellow tickets or 2,000 verses of Scripture memorized, you could trade that in for a brand new Bible. Now, Tom Sawyer did not much care for a brand new Bible, but he did value the idea of standing in front of the class and receiving the glory of receiving a brand new Bible. Naturally, he did not memorize 2,000 verses of the Bible. He traded whatever he could find, whatever his friends would take, for ticket after ticket after ticket, and over a lengthy process, finally amassed the requisite number of yellow tickets. And it just so happened that this was a day in Sunday school when a distinguished guest had come, Judge Thatcher, and uh, young Tom comes to present himself to the Sunday school superintendent, Mr. Walters, to receive a new Bible. Mr. Walters was taken aback because he knew Tom. He did not expect this from Tom. And yet he still wanted to impress Judge Thatcher with the honor of presenting a Bible to a distinguished pupil on that day. So Mr. Walters presents Tom with the Bible, and Judge Thatcher begins to heap praise upon the young boy for being such a diligent student of Scripture. And after some awkward conversation, eventually Judge Thatcher said to Tom, no doubt you know the names of all 12 disciples. Won't you tell us the names of the first two who were appointed? And after some additional promptings, Tom Sawyer blurted out, David and Goliath. Mark Twain ends the chapter by saying, let us draw the curtain of charity over the rest of the scene. <laughs> Even if you don't know much about the Bible, you have probably heard the story of David and Goliath before. The most famous story in the books of First and Second Samuel, perhaps the most famous story in the Old Testament. But our familiarity with the story can obscure what it's actually doing in its context. We are used to speaking of David and Goliath, but in actuality, this story is much more about David and Saul. Goliath is a minor character. This story is the beginning of David's rising star in Israel. 
And from this point on, well, we've actually already seen it a little bit in chapter 16, but from this point on, we will see David ascend as the newly anointed, destined future king, and Saul continue to decline as he goes farther and farther away from the Lord. That's what's going to occupy the storyline of the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. One response to David after this story of killing Goliath is particularly intriguing. You, you see how the people of Israel respond as a whole. The people of Israel think David is a superstar. He's the new celebrity. He becomes a military commander in Saul's army. He goes from part-time musician in the court of King Saul to permanent employee and military leader who becomes famous in Saul's court and throughout the nation. But one, one response in particular I find very intriguing, and that is the response of Jonathan, the son of King Saul. According to chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, after the incident with Goliath, Jonathan loved David as himself. Jonathan entered into a covenant with David, a covenant of mutually pledged friendship, loyalty. Jonathan even took off his own garments, his, his robe, his armor, his belt, and his weapons, and gave them to David. Now, that could have been nothing more than a way of saying, you need some new clothes to appear before the king. But it might have been saying much more. Jonathan may have been saying with that act that he was investing David with political loyalty knowing, knowing somehow that his own father was going to lose the throne and that he himself would never inherit it. And he was okay with that reality. In other words, Jonathan, as we see here and as we'll see in several stories to come, Jonathan throws his lot in with David, the son of Jesse, even against the interests of his own father, Saul, even against the interests of his own career and political future. Now, why would Jonathan do that? He obviously saw something in David on this occasion that prompted him to say, in essence, as John the Baptist would say many years later of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. What was it that Jonathan saw? That's what I want to ask this morning. Because what Jonathan saw is what I believe God has shown us about David so that David may be a model to us as well. And to see that, I want to take us through the story of chapter 17 and notice what we can see uh, that Jonathan himself saw in David on that day. The story begins with a stalemate on the battlefield. The Philistines, the last time we saw them, they had been routed in battle by the Israelites in chapters 13 and 14. Uh, Saul had gained a victory over them, not really owing to his own abilities, but because of Jonathan's bravery. And yet the Philistines came back. And according to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 17, the Philistines took their stand at a strategic location between Soko and Azekah in an area where if they could take the spot, they would have easy access to invade Saul's kingdom. And the army came and, and lined up in ranks on an elevated area with Israel's army on another elevated area facing them. And in between was a valley that we could call 
no man's land. And out from the ranks of the Philistines, there came a terrifying sight. Look at chapter 17, verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Nine feet, nine inches. That's what that means. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, roughly 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, between 15 and 16 pounds. And his shield-bearer went before them, but before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The Philistine proposes a one-to-one combat that would be representative of the entire battle. And seeing this challenger come forth, a, a towering figure, a giant of a man, clothed in armor from head to toe, with a shield bearer in front of him, with the best weapons of the day available to him, the Israelite army is reduced to paralyzed fear. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. It's interesting that Saul, when he's introduced in the book of 1 Samuel, he's presented as a tall man, an outwardly impressive man. But the problem with relying on your own abilities, as tall and impressive, is that there will always be someone else taller. There will always be someone else more impressive. And that's what Saul confronts here on the battlefield in the Valley of Elah, and he is reduced to doing nothing because he simply doesn't know what to do. Saul, the king of Israel, of whom we have just been told in chapter 16, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him, has no answer to this Philistine champion. And there stood his son watching and observing, Jonathan noticing Jonathan definitely would have noticed up to this point that the man of God, Samuel, simply wasn't around anymore. Saul wasn't hearing from God anymore. Jonathan probably was aware of Saul's recent fits caused by this evil spirit that was tormenting him. Jonathan probably could see the writing on the wall for his father's reign over Israel. And thus we have a dire situation here in the beginning. At this moment in the story, the camera fades, and we cut to a new scene, starting in verse 12. Here we're now in the little town of Bethlehem, where David, who, as we noted in chapter 16, was made a part-time musician in the court of King Saul to soothe him when those torments came over him, and yet David continued to go back and forth 
between Saul's court and his father's flocks in Bethlehem. So David is out tending the sheep in Bethlehem, and David gets a full introduction for the first time in the story, starting in verse 12. Through a series of events, David finds his story intersecting with the story of the stalemate at the battlefield in the valley of Elah. His father, Jesse, who has eight sons, uh, no doubt is concerned for the safety of his oldest three, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, because they are serving now in Saul's army. And he's heard news about a battle that's going on. And so he decides that he wants to check on the safety of his oldest sons. So he calls his youngest son, David, and he gives him roasted grain, loaves of bread, and cheeses. And he tells them, tells them, take these to your brothers and to their commander and check on them. See how they're doing. And then come back and, and let me know. And so David, the dutiful son, sets off on his journey, having no idea what's going on on the battlefield. But he arrives at just the moment when the army of Israel is leaving the camp to go out to form ranks for the day. And so seeing that they're heading out to the battlefield, he decides to leave uh, the food that he has with the keeper of the baggage, and he runs out to the ranks as well to find his brothers. And when he finds them, he greets them, and as soon as he does, he can spot the Philistine champion walking out into no man's land for another day of taunting the armies of Israel. This is day 40. Goliath has been doing this day after day for 40 days. 40 days is often a period of testing of the people of God in Scripture. And here we have Goliath, 40 days in, taunting the army of Israel yet again. Verse 23, if you look at it, it sounds very repetitive, and yet the author adds a new element right at the end. It says, as he talked with him, that's David talked with his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Now, that's the first time David heard this. Forty days in, but the new element is now introduced. David hears what is going on, and David is about to break this stalemate. So David begins asking questions. What's going to be done for the man who takes on this warrior? Much to his older brother's chagrin, David's causing a stir in the army. And the, the men begin talking to one another and passing on word. And eventually the, the, uh, the whispers and the, the discussion find their way to King Saul himself. And Saul hears that there may be a man willing to confront the Philistine champion. So Saul summons David to himself. And after some back and forth of uh, objecting and then David answering, Saul decides to give David the opportunity to go out and face the Philistine champion. And again, Jonathan would have noticed. Jonathan would have noticed that his father had stood there for 40 days and done nothing. And here comes this young man out of Bethlehem who immediately on the scene is ready to act. And then the battle itself is narrated for us, beginning in verse 38. Now, it begins with an actually a humorous scene. Saul decides that David needs to be equipped with some armor, and so he puts his own armor on David to go out into battle. Now, remember, Saul is a tall man. 
David? Not necessarily. And so we can assume the armor didn't fit all that well. In addition, David had never tested the armor. And so trying to move around in it became too much for David to bear. So he decided he would take it off. But don't miss the irony of what has just happened. Without knowing it, Saul has symbolically portrayed David's future. He has symbolically portrayed that in the future, David is going to take his throne from him. David uh, decides to go out carrying only his shepherd's staff, only a sling and five smooth stones. And when Goliath sees him, he cries out. He can't believe what he sees, this young shepherd coming to take on a Philistine champion. And so he cries out, am I a dog that you're coming at me with sticks? He curses David by his gods. David doesn't bat an eye, but in verse 45, uh, notice again how he responds. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The actual account of the battle is rather short and sweet. David hurls one stone from his slingshot, and it finds the one area of David's body that remains exposed, his face. And by divine providence, hits him in the forehead, sinks into his forehead, sends him to the ground on his face, where presumably at this point, the shield bearer has scattered. David, who has no sword in his hand, goes up to the enormous body of this Philistine, borrows his sword... And in a moment that reflects what we've seen previously in chapter 5 with the false god Dagon falling down before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and then the next day falling down again with his head and his hands cut off. In a moment reflective of that event, David cuts off the head of this giant. It was a serpent-crushing Genesis 3.15 moment. And my, how the tables turned. Now it's the Philistines' opportunity to shake in their boots while the Israelite army once again routs them. What Saul could not accomplish in 40 days, David accomplishes in less than one. The deliverer from Bethlehem had come. So what did Jonathan see on this occasion? What did he see in David that he knew was missing in his father that would cause him to say, my lot is with the son of Jesse, even against my own future political interests. I believe he saw a living faith in the living God. He saw a living faith in the living God, a faith that Saul lacked, but that Jonathan shared with David. We've seen a story about Jonathan already where he did something equally crazy, and the Lord was with him. Through this living faith in the living God, Jonathan knew that David 
could see reality as it actually is, namely taking God into account. Once we see the reality of God, that reality eclipses all else. And that's what this living faith is able to see and then to act upon. You see this coming out in the story in the use of a key term. In verse 10, I want you to notice how the Philistine begins his taunts against Israel. The Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. That word defy appears six times in some form in the Hebrew in this chapter. Uh, Notice, for example, verse 25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And then look at verse 26. By the way, verse 26, these are the first recorded words of David in the Bible. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach, same Hebrew root, from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Look again at verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And then look at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That idea of defiance pervades this chapter. The Philistine comes out to defy the armies of Israel, but in doing so, he is actually defying their God. He is raising a fist at heaven and shaking it and daring the God of Israel to act in response. David can see that what's going on here is not just a political war between two nations. It is a heavenly war between gods. David can see the reality that this man has no right to defy God and that he will not get away with it. The conflict turns entirely on this idea of defiance. Twice David refers to the armies of the living God in verses 26 and 36. The way David speaks throughout this story indicates that he has a worldview that is saturated with the reality of God. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Syria sends an army to Dothan because he's gotten intelligence that that's where the prophet Elisha is. And it turns out the prophet of Elisha has become the greatest weapon Israel has against Syria because he receives supernatural revelation about every move the Syrian king is going to make. So he decides it's time to take out Elisha and he sends an army to the city of Dothan and they surround it by night. And in the morning, the servant of Elisha wakes up and he sees that they are now in a city that's been laid under siege. He cries out to Elisha, Master, what shall we do? And Elisha tells him, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays for his servant, Lord, open his eyes. And his servant suddenly is able to see that all around them are stationed horses and chariots of fire. The armies of heaven are there to defend them. And what that story shows us is is if that we can only take into account the unseen reality of every situation, it would change our perspective entirely. 
From that moment, the servant knew there's no way harm comes to us this day. God is with us. The armies of heaven have come to defend us. That was the way David saw the world. That's the living faith and the living God that Jonathan observed in him this day. And I believe that is what is most instructive for us. And so I want us to, to, to take home today three words of instruction about this kind of faith. Three characteristics that we'll work through quickly. Three characteristics of David's faith. Number one, faith acts according to the promises of God in Scripture. Faith acts according to the promises of God in Scripture. Now, in making this point, I'm making an assumption about David. I'm going to assume that David knew uh, the Scriptures, at least the ones that had been written to that point. He, he gives evidence throughout the rest of, of his, his time in the story, as well as the many Psalms that he wrote, of knowing the Scriptures very well. It seems that he would have been taught by his father, Jesse, the Scriptures of, uh, of Israel's history and the stories of the past. And so making that assumption, what do we note about previous acts of God in Israel's history to this event that David would have been familiar with? Well, certainly David would have known the story in Numbers 13 and 14, where the Israelites, now ready to go into the promised land, send out spies to spy it out. And when the spies come back, the, the vast majority of them warn the people, we cannot go up into this land. Why? Because there are giants there. There are warriors there who will, who will crush us. We have no hope of taking the land. It's time to, to choose a new leader, to get rid of this Moses fellow, and go back to Egypt. And that's what they tried to do. And as a result, God decreed that that generation would fall in the desert. And it would be the next generation who would inherit the promised land. David would have known that story. He would have known fearing giants is not an act of faithfulness. David would have been familiar, I assume, with Moses' words to Israel, the next generation of Israel, in Deuteronomy 9. Uh, I'd like you to turn there, if you could hold your place in 1 Samuel, but turn to Deuteronomy 9. I want you to notice what God has previously said about giants to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 to 4. Through Moses... He says, hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard, whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you is a consuming fire. As a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. And David presumably would have known about the story in Joshua 11. Flip over a few pages back to the right now. Joshua 11, verses 21 and 22. Page 188 in the Red Bible. 21 and 22, the account of when Israel actually did encounter giants in the land. 
And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim, those are the giants, from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. There were a remnant of giants left in these few cities. And lo and behold, when we're introduced to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 4, he's identified as Goliath of Gath. He's one of the remnant of these giants whom the Lord had given to Israel. David, knowing this, goes into battle, not seeing his size, not seeing his armor, not seeing the terrifying prospect before him, but seeing one of whom the Lord had said, I have given him into your hand. Now, go win this battle. David is not acting in a foolhardy or presumptuous way. He's acting according to what God had revealed in Scripture prior to this event. That is what faith does. It acts according to what God has revealed, what God has promised in Scripture. Faith acts on God's promises, which means someone who believes the promises of God should live differently from one who doesn't. So do you believe the promise of God of Romans 10 verse 9 that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from the coming judgment of God. Do you believe that promise? If you do, you will stop relying on your own efforts to save you. You will stop relying on anything outside of Christ to deliver you from the judgment of come, to, to come. Do you believe the promise of Romans 8.33 that it is God who justifies? If you believe that promise, then you will stop looking to other things and other people to justify you, to validate you, to give your life meaning. Even your own spouse or your parents or your in-laws or your friend group or your social media followers or this world, these are not the people who justify us. God does. And if you believe that promise, you will live as though that is true. Do you believe the promise of Matthew 6.33? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, food and clothing, will be added to you. Well, if you do, then you're not going to orient your life around financial security. You're not going to build your life around the goal of meeting your needs. You are going to seek first the kingdom and trust God to meet your needs. Faith acts according to what God has promised. To the eyes of faith, the reality of God eclipses everything else. That's what we see in David here in this story. That's the first characteristic of faith. The second is this. Faith is nurtured by remembering past mercies. Faith is nurtured by remembering past mercies. It's interesting that when David first comes to Saul to volunteer to take on the Philistines, Saul's response is, you can't do it. You're but a youth. He's been a warrior from his youth. David has a response ready for Saul in that moment. Notice verses 34 to 36. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear 
and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. There is another character in the Bible, at least one other character I'm aware of, who kills a lion with his bare hands, and that is Samson. In Judges 14.6, we read, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. I remember my high school football coach printed that verse out and put it on everybody's locker on the night when we were going to go against the new Boston Lions. Now, that was taking the verse a bit out of context. In the story of Samson, the whole point is that this is supernatural strength. Samson is not just Chuck Norris, nor is David. Samson is empowered by the Spirit of God. And that's what I believe David is alluding to as well. He doesn't actually mention the Spirit, but I'm inclined to say that we just saw the account in chapter 16 of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon David after Samuel anointed him. I'm inclined to say that these encounters with lions and bears probably happened after that event, when the Spirit empowered him with supernatural strength to do what is humanly unimaginable to take on these wild beasts with his bare hands. And yet he did, and he remembered this mercy of God that had been upon him in the past. And because God had acted in such marvelous ways in the past, and because David remembered that, he had the nurturing of his faith to press on into the future uh, or toward the present challenge that he was facing. One of the best investments I have ever made for my walk with the Lord is a simple notebook, a notebook that I've been writing in for about two years now, and I simply record prayer requests, and I record ways that God has answered prayers or otherwise shown blessing. I've been keeping a record of that for about two years, and every once in a while, I'll go back and just read through that. And in just two years, two years out of 41 that I've lived now, um, I'm, I read account after account after account of God providing for a need, of God uh, changing someone's heart, of God uh, bringing peace to a situation that, that seemed like it needed peace, God providing guidance, uh, God blessing in this way or that way. And it's such a good practice for me to read back over those things because I'll find myself saying, oh yeah, I had forgotten. I had forgotten about that. And I need to remember that because in the Scripture, remembering is almost a synonym for faith. A generation that forgets the Lord is a generation that turns away from Him. A generation that stops believing in Him in the Scripture. So I encourage you, I commend to you, remember the Lord's past mercies. Remember what he has done. Keep a record of these things that can nurture your faith for the present moment. And then a third characteristic of faith. 
Faith is undeterred by opposition. Faith is undeterred by opposition. You get the impression when you're reading this that David is the only person in the entire Israelite army who thinks David can take on Goliath. His brother certainly doesn't think so. When David starts asking questions, Eliab, his oldest brother, starts to belittle him and mock him and tells him, you just, you just came out here because you wanted to see the battle. You're, you're, you're just a curious little kid. You don't have any sense of courage or duty to be here. So his, his brother's belittling him. He goes before Saul, and, and he asks for the opportunity to fight. And Saul at first tells him, no, you can't do it. But in both cases, David remains undeterred, even with an older brother, an older brother whom you would normally be able to trust to give you wisdom, or a king whom you would hope to be able to trust to give you wisdom. But in both cases, David remains undeterred by what they say because he sees with the eyes of faith. It is because faith leads to action, because faith leads us into concrete action, that you, when you act in faith, may often be led into opposition with others. Other people who do not share your faith will not understand your actions. And they will oppose you in many cases. Those of you who are, are children or teenagers today, from everything we can tell but according to current trends, they might change, but everything we can tell according to current trends, it looks like you are going to inherit a world where it is far more difficult to be a Christian than it has been for our generation. All of the major corporations, the media, the major politicians of this world, the celebrities, and the leading university faculty and administrators in our nation, all of them are united in holding a worldview that is antithetical to the truth that is revealed by God. And all of them are united in holding this view that says that what the Bible teaches, particularly in our moment, what the Bible teaches about manhood, about womanhood, and about marriage and sexuality, that these things are morally backwards. And so if the leading powers of this age continue to hold that view and push it farther and farther into society at large, the future may become more and more difficult to hold to the truth. So I want to ask you, are you ready? Are you ready to miss out on job opportunities? Because the way people view you is no different from the way we today might look at the segregationists of the Jim Crow era. Are you ready to be shouted down in a university classroom because your views are quote-unquote violent and make people feel unsafe? Are you ready to be fired because you refuse to manipulate the English language and call somebody by their preferred pronouns instead of by reality? If you have living faith in the living God, you will be undeterred by these things. Because God will be more real to you than the people who tell you to disobey Him.
I remember when we were going through the book of Revelation, Lee made a, a great point in talking about the influence of the beast who arises in chapter 13 of Revelation, representing state power in opposition to God. And I may not quote it exactly right, but I think I got the gist of it. Lee said, you can either follow the beast now and be spared his wrath, but face the wrath of the lamb in the future. Or you can follow the lamb now, face the wrath of the beast, but be accepted by the lamb in the future. And if you see it that way, if you see that that's really the story that's playing out, is there even a choice? Is there even a choice that you have to make? On that day of battle, Jonathan saw a living faith in David, a faith that was absent from Saul, a faith that makes David a model to us of how to walk by living faith in the living God. But David is not only a model of faith, he's also a shadow or a type of the one who is the object of our faith. He is the deliverer from Bethlehem who came forth and delivered the armies of Israel from an overwhelming enemy, just as our Lord Jesus Christ is our deliverer from Bethlehem who came and lived a perfect life and was crucified for our sins and was raised from the dead on the third day so that all who look to him may have eternal life. And so in this story, we see modeled for us how to exercise faith, but we also see modeled for us in a pale, shadowy way, but nevertheless real, the one to whom we must direct our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that now as we eat and drink at his table once more. We invite you to come to the table and to eat and drink with us if you are a believer in Christ who has publicly professed your faith and is a member in good standing with a local church. Now, if that's not true of you, we ask you to abstain today. And the reason we ask you to abstain is because uh, it's not because we don't want to welcome you. We very much do, but we want to welcome you in the proper order. And the proper order is that you would trust in Jesus Christ to deliver you from your sins and from the coming judgment of God, profess that in baptism, and be part of a local body, whether this one or some other local body where you are accountable to other believers who are able to affirm your confession of faith. Tom spoke of the church baptizing this earlier today, exercising the power of the keys of the kingdom. And so we ask that you be accountable to a church that exercises the power of the keys to declare that you are a follower of Jesus. So if that's not true of you, we want to talk to you today about what is the next step for you, professing faith in Christ or joining with a local church to walk with us. So we're going to come to the table row by row, uh, starting with the, f- the first row to come uh, from the outside and then to return to your seat to the inside in the overflow. First row can go back to the, the area by the nursery counter. There'll be a pastor there waiting for you. But we're going to take a moment of silence now as we prepare to, uh, to come to the table to remember Christ crucified for us. Please take a moment of silence. <laughs> 